Yes, please be seated. Thank you, Frank, and good morning, everyone. Let's just move on to a word, a moment of prayer together. Let us pray. May the risen, living Lord Jesus be present amongst us this morning and minister to each of us and all of us in his reality, in his truth, in his grace, and and in his compassion, as he ministers to us by the Holy Spirit, working by and with the word of God. Amen. I hope you still have that Bible passage open in front of you. If not, then please would you mind reopening uh, a Bible to John, John's Gospel and chapter 21. And this is page 1090 in the Church Bibles. I'd like to begin, however, by telling you a true story involving a bishop and a dentist. The bishop had gone along to the dentist to have a completely new set of teeth fitted, top and bottom sets. And uh, after all the adjustments had been made, the uh, bishop left the chair and he went over to a part of the room where there was a mirror and he looked at his uh, new face, his new mouth in the mirror and as he looked at himself he said the following words, Jesus Christ... And then he said it again. Jesus Christ. Then out of the corner of his eye, he saw that the dentist was looking a little bit puzzled at these profane words coming out of the mouth of a man of the cloth. And so the bishop explained. That's the first time in 20 years that I've been able to say that precious name without whistling. (laughs) Well, evidently that dear man loved Jesus Christ. And love for Jesus Christ, as I hope you'll have noticed, is a central theme in our Bible passage this morning. Remember, it was John chapter 21 and the first 19 verses, where the Lord Jesus asks Peter, Simon Peter, three times, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you really love me? And Peter gives an increasingly pained response. Yes, I love you. You know I love you. Of course I love you. There is, of course, an interesting backstory to this episode. And I'd like to remind you of that backstory. Scene number one, the Mount of Olives. This took place on the night before Jesus was crucified. Jesus had presided over what we call the Last Supper, and then led the disciples out onto the hillside, the Mount of Olives. And uh, according to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26, Jesus told his disciples there on the hillside, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. But Peter, forthright, confident, boastful, Peter said, even if all these others fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. 
And you can see him, can't you, with his chest puffed out. No, not me. Maybe the others, but not me. I will never let you down. Well, of course, Peter had not reckoned with how vulnerable we can all be at critical times. I can remember when a relative of mine, uh, a Christian, uh, lost her husband at an early age. And uh, shortly afterwards, she was tempted into a relationship which would have bound to have been disastrous for both parties. But it was a moment of vulnerability. But I can remember that her prayer at that very time echoed the words of an old song by Paul Field entitled, Don't Let Me Fall, which itself echoes the warning of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and chapter 10, when he warns, if you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. Well, that's the first scene as a backstory to our present uh, episode this morning, Peter and his boastfulness and his vulnerability. Now we move on to scene number two, later that same evening, in the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus has by now been betrayed by Judas, and his trial has begun. Peter has been following on behind. But then Peter is confronted. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, no, don't, no, no, no. I'm sure you're one of Jesus' disciples. No, not me. Mistaken identity, not me at all. I'm sure I saw you with him earlier this very evening. Comes the third uh, accusation. And Mark's gospel, which is the gospel we think is itself based to a very large extent on Peter's own recollections. It's Mark's gospel in chapter 14 that records at that point... Peter began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Well, of course, Peter had failed. He had failed at the moment of truth, the moment where he had the opportunity to be the hero he'd boasted about, and he failed. He'd failed, and he knew it. He broke down, and he wept bitterly. But, you know, Peter may not have been the first, and he certainly wasn't the last follower of Jesus to fail. Some Christians fail their Lord spectacularly. Take a well-known Christian minister who gives in to a moment of temptation, of sexual temptation, and in that moment, a reputation is lost. A career is in ruins The credibility of the gospel is called into question, and several lives are damaged seriously. A spectacular fall. Some Christians fail secretly. Some of us have not been on speaking terms, I mean real speaking terms, with God for a long time. And yet we know enough about how Christians are supposed to speak and behave that we can keep up the pretense For many years, we have, but it is just that, a pretense. We have a form of godliness, but no power. Some Christians fail repeatedly. There are some niggling, besetting disobedience 
that keeps coming about in their lives. And there is a, a, a cycle of disobedience, followed by regret, followed by self-recrimination, and then followed by determined effort to do things better next time, and then failure once again. And uh, an almost never-ending uh, cycle that leads then to despair. But I have good news for you. However you may have failed... In your Christian life, I have good news for you this morning. In the Christian life, this Bible passage teaches us that in the Christian life, failure is never final. Peter himself may well have thought that his failure, being so acute, so abject, so against what he thought he was capable of, was final. But for him, it was not final. And for you and I, failure is not final either. So let us come on then to our third and final scene this morning, the Sea of Tiberias. The disciples are there together, and they decide to go, fi- uh, go, go fishing. Well, it's Peter who decides to go, f- uh, go fishing. At least I know about that. But in fact, he doesn't even know about that anymore. They have a completely barren night of attempted fishing in the sea. They catch nothing. And then Jesus appears and speaks to them in such a friendly, encouraging, helpful way. Caught anything? Not a drop. Not a minnow. Well, just try dropping your net down there, right-hand side of the boat. And, of course, you know the story. They have a vast haul of fish. And then Jesus says to them, okay, so come and have breakfast with me. And they can see and hear and smell the friendliness of that campfire on the seashore and they have this breakfast of no it wasn't bacon eggs not cheerios of fish and bread together and then jesus turns to peter and he asks them that threefold question each with a slightly different nuance to it do you love me do you love me more than these do you really love me and then peter's troubled, anxious, bothered reply, yes I do, you know I do, of course I love you. But I want you to notice that that Jesus handles this conversation with Peter with the utmost sensitivity. After all, it takes place on Peter's own territory by the seashore. Peter's a fisherman. Peter has just been doing what he knows best, and with Jesus' help, it's turned into a, a, a very successful uh, night of, uh, of, of fishing. The whole thing takes place in the friendly environment of an early morning barbecue by the lakeside. But there's something more than just the friendliness of the whole thing here as well. This episode probably took place within a few hundred meters of the very place where Jesus had first called Peter to leave his nets and follow him. And then Jesus addresses Peter by his pre-Christian name of Simon, son of John. And then, verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. But then they were the very words that Jesus had used when he first called Peter. Do you see what's going on here? Firstly, a most friendly and encouraging and helpful environment, and then taking Peter right back to where he started. 
it seems very clear to me that Jesus is saying to Peter in all these ways, do you want to start again? Do you want a new beginning? Let's start this again. I think we have here the offer of a fresh start. But now, notice this. I've said quite a lot about Peter's failure. Jesus says not a word about Peter's failure. Well, there's just a hint. Peter had failed, denied Jesus three times, and now there's a threefold question, do you love me? So there's a hint of a connection there. But Jesus doesn't address Peter's failure directly at all. On the other hand, I don't think that Jesus is ignoring or trivialising Peter's failure. But he didn't need to point the finger of, of accusation. He didn't need... Peter knew just how badly he'd done, what a failure he was. Peter was full of regret. Jesus didn't need to point the finger. Peter knew he'd done wrong. So let me remind you, please, that as we review the Gospels generally, Jesus had no hesitation in giving the hellfire treatment to the proudly self-righteous. You, you whitewashed sepulchres, you, 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 you brood of snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the condemnation of hell? Uh, of hell? He said to the, the, uh, the, the consciously self-righteous. But to those who knew they'd done wrong, Jesus used the utmost care, grace, compassion, forgiveness and mercy. Let me remind you of just one small fact. Jesus never accused any prostitute of hellfire. He reserved that kind of talk for religious insiders who should have known better and didn't know just how far they were from the kingdom of God. So in all of this, I think we see very clearly Jesus' love for Peter. But that, of course, was never in doubt. What our Saviour really wants to probe is Peter's love for Jesus. Hence the threefold question, do you love me? Because love, after all, is at the very heart of Christian experience and usefulness. What does Paul say? Well, without love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. But with love... I'm patient and kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude or self-seeking. Love is not easily, easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Ah, yes, perseverance. That's the very thing that Peter had not shown. He had not persevered at the time of crisis. And so Jesus addresses this very point in verse 18. It's a pretty cryptic saying, but there's something comes across very clear from what Jesus says to Peter here. Verse 18, Jesus turns to Peter and says, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then, a word of explanation. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, you probably know that tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. That was the way that he was martyred. Now, that, this passage doesn't say that. Um, it doesn't even say that Peter would be martyred. 
What this passage does say clearly is that at the time that Peter reaches the end of his life, he will not be in full control of the circumstances, and yet by his very death he will glorify God. Do you see there's a promise that he will persevere? What a strange thing is that Peter probably survived another 20 years after Jesus said this, with this cryptic promise hanging over him. When I reach my end, I'll be out of control of what's happening to me, and yet my death will glorify God. He would persevere. What a gracious thing for our Lord Jesus to have told him. Maybe some of us here, many of us here this morning, are aware of having failed our Saviour. I would now welcome the opportunity to tell him that we love him and ask him for his renewing grace. Maybe some of us will want to go home today and do that quietly in private prayer. Or we might take opportunity at the close of the service to spend a few moments with members of our prayer ministry team or have somebody pray for you briefly after you've received Holy Communion. Remembering that Jesus is more ready to forgive and restore than we ask to ask for those mercies. Now just a short further thought by way of conclusion. There are two activities going on in this chapter. The first is obvious, it's the activity of fishing. Firstly, a failed fishing trip and then a successful fishing trip. And a reminder that without Jesus, we can do nothing. But the second activity that's being referred to here is shepherding. As Jesus says to Peter three times, look after my sheep, feed my lambs, and so on. So there's this hint of shepherding as Peter is reinstated and recommissioned to take care of Christ's sheep. So these two activities, fishing and shepherding, or if you like, evangelism and nurturing, or mission and pastoral care, these twin tasks define the core business of the Christian church in every generation. And may we today fulfill those tasks in the power of Christ's spirit. Let us together work for Christ in love, just as he first loved us. Let us pray. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for your unbounding, bottomless, unspeakable love. We ask you to be gracious to each one of us now and to us as a community of believers and restore all those uh, things in which we have failed you and lift us up and strengthen us to be your people uh, fit for the challenges of being members of the kingdom of God in this place and in this age, we pray. Amen.